I'm Craig, and you're listening to the Ireland Podcast. Check one, two, check one, two. are you and what do you do? <laughs> I am a professional mouth clown or comedian and uh, I tell jokes and make people laugh. A mouth clown? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that term. I think it's more interesting than saying comedian. What's your name? Danny O'Brien. Class. Where are you from, Danny? I am Dublin born and kind of Wicklow raised, so I'm a bit of a hybrid. Where in Wicklow? Glendalough. What's that like? It's very beautiful. Glendalough is Irish for the Valley of the Two Lakes and it gets over a million visitors a year, but it's also a really small, kind of isolated village. Heavily visited, but also kind of insular as well, you know. Farming community? Yeah, very much so. A lot of farm, a lot of agriculture. They, shot a lot, they shoot a lot of movies down there as well. So like they, they, a lot of American films would come over. They shot Rain of Fire there, for example. So there's a lot of, a lot of film work. And um, there's like a kind of a chemical plant out near Rathdrome and a lot of, a lot of farm, a lot of agricultural work as well. Any tech? Uh, not that I'm aware of. There's some tech in Bray, which is in the same county, but there's no, there's absolutely no tech in the, in the part that I'm from, for sure. How far are you from Bray? Uh, it was about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And how far are you from Dublin? Uh, about... At night time, if I was ever driving after a gig and I was doing a midnight run, no traffic, green lights, I, I, you do it in maybe 50 minutes, but you're looking at about an hour, an hour and 20. Grant. Mouse clown, back to that. Yes. Tell us more. I have been doing stand-up comedy for almost, it's actually 15 years this month, believe it or not. Wow. My first gig was on the 15th of February, 15 years ago, and it was a, a showcase show for brand new comedians called the Post-Valentine's Day Massacre in Doyle's Pub, in the room where they have the Ruby Sessions, which is a really iconic uh, music session that's been going on for nearly, I think, 20 years now. And I actually did a, a course. I was, I came back, <coughs> excuse me, I left Ireland when I was in my early 20s and I went traveling all around New Zealand and Australia and I left during the Celtic Tiger when people were getting 110% mortgages and, you know, people on 30 grand were buying apartments for half a million quid and, you know, I can't see any long-term consequences of this behavior. And when I came home, uh, I remember driving my mother's car, she had this little black Hyundai Getz and I remember driving her car and on the radio it said... Ireland has officially entered the greatest economic recession in the history of the Irish state. Unemployment went up to about 15%. I was lucky enough to have work. I was working in a pub that I, I'd worked in when I was in college and it was miserable. It was grim. Uh, I was going to move to England and um, do cons construction maybe. Or I, I didn't really know. I was a bit lost, to be honest with you. And my mum suggested I do a writing course because I loved kind of having a bit of crack with people and having a bit of laugh and telling stories. And the writing course was kind of comedy focused and you had the option at the end of it to do a seven-minute stand-up set. And I did that, and I basically haven't been off the stage since. So wow. it took me quite a few years of double-jobbing. Like, I was working in bars, I was working in events. I, you named the job, I kind of did it. Until then I moved into uh, youth work, and I, I studied um, youth justice. So I was working with young people in kind of low socioeconomic areas all around Dublin by day. And then by night, I was shouting at strangers for their validation in darkened rooms. 
and did that for a few years, moved into the addiction services. So I worked as a key worker in the homeless and addiction services, which was, I, I loved the work, but it was extremely, um, the burnout from it is, is pretty phenomenal. Like you're doing 13 hour shifts, you're dealing with people with the, the most difficult mental health um, challenges and obviously homelessness and then all the medical issues that go along with that as well. And I did that for years. And then in 2016, I had done the Edinburgh Fringe and I got asked to do a show called The Best of the Edinburgh Fest. So I was brought to Australia on a three-month tour with two other comics, one English, one Scottish. Well, part of Australia. Uh, it started off in Adelaide Fringe Festival. Then, Sorry, excuse me. It started off in Perth Fringe and then it, Fringe World Perth. Then it moved from Fringe World Perth to Adelaide Comedy Festival, then on to Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is ironically where I kind of got my first interest in stand-up. I'd been to see Dylan Morn um, about 10 years before that. And it was incredible to be suddenly performing in the theatre that you're after seeing someone mm. performing. And I, I haven't looked back. I have an event company as well. I run a comedy club in Dublin for the last 12 years, my business partner. So comedy and... This, Is that your husband? No, I wish. My husband's Carl Spain. <laughs> this always comes up. So during the pandemic, you I, I think if anyone's listening will remember, you weren't allowed to do any live gigs. It totally decimated the live entertainment industry. We were the first to go, last to come back, effectively. And there was a law at the time that you couldn't do live gigs, but you could do a wedding for up to 50 people. So myself and Carl Spain had a show booked in, and then we, as a precaution, said, let's get married so that this is a legal show. So <laughs> the marriage was a ruse for the gig? Yeah, pretty much. Our mate is a celebrant. He's another comedian from Cork. He drove up. He did the, the thing. I don't think it would stand up in court, but uh, it was a bit of crack anyway. And uh, I still, I haven't gotten an annulment yet, so... Yeah, I was telling my kids about this this morning. and Tell them we haven't consummated it. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> well, they're a bit early for that. So... Uh, <laughs> Do you have a girlfriend? Did you have a girlfriend? At the no, time? no, Carl does though. Carl has a long-term partner that oh, he's dear. been with for like 17 years. So uh, that yeah. took a bit of convincing. And then my kids were saying, why didn't he marry the, the girlfriend? I said, well, because this is more bit of crack. That would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. Let me tell you a little something about the crack kids. I know. <laughs> the I know. crack is paramount. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. I'll say nothing there. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm divorced. So, um. I'm soon to be divorced. Don't worry about it. Are you? Well, from Carl. Oh, right. <laughs> I was I was telling the kids this, and it's I think it's important. The default setting after a divorce is is resentment and bitterness. Mm. And I've worked very hard with my ex to become friends. Yeah, you know. But the default setting is resentment and bitterness. Yeah, well, it's it's ingrained, and you know, people having divorce parties and stuff like that yeah. are becoming more and more common. And I think that's a far healthier and more beneficial, particularly when you have kids like yeah. that, that. They're the ones that come first. And uh, I've I've seen the toxicity yeah. of and experienced it myself growing up of like parents that are you know that are really awful to each other and. Yeah the impact on that and kids is so negative. So if parents can kind of look beyond that, I think it's absolutely the way forward. And that way everyone benefits, you know what I mean? It's like mm. that, it's kind of like the, the metal, you know, the, for the good of the village type thing. But but the, the problem is the journey to get to that friendship is more difficult. No doubt, of course. Yeah. And therefore that's why a lot of divorces end up in resentment and bitterness yeah. because, because the journey is just too tough. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I, I just... Did you ever see that um, picture? 
it was really famous online um, of a couple dividing up their beanie babies in the 1990s <laughs> in a divorce. They had a beanie baby collection that were like was worth loads of money and the two of them were sitting there fuming in a court dividing beanie babies and I'm like man I never ever want to be in a situation where I'm dividing up beanie babies with someone yeah you know it's like Harry Met Sally that scene you know where they're arguing and stuff. do you know, do you know what, <laughs> what I'm thinking of is um, Annie's song John Denver yeah do you know that song I do go on here we go here we go <laughs> a little blast of a twiggy you fill up my scene like a night in the forest Like a mountain in springtime Like a walk in the rain And so on and so on and so on That song for me is the biggest punk song Because he wrote that song going up a ski lift first of all he was, What? Well he was on a ski lift and he wrote it going up the ski lift and I think by the end of the ski lift he had written the song that's insane but and he wrote it because he's so much in love with this lady Annie that song or that marriage ended up he took a chainsaw to their marital beds and cut it in half <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I think of Annie's what, what's, song, the, what's the line of the chorus there what's the uh, you fill my senses yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What is it? You fill my senses as he's chainsawing through a bed. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like like quite psychotic, isn't it? But it, for me, it's the ultimate punk song. Yeah, you know, like because I, I just think that's so it's good. Annihilatic, you know. I love that. You know, I'm gonna try and develop a bit of material about that because there's something really incredible about someone like with a pen and paper, you know, penning these beautiful words, looking at someone, going, "God, you're the most incredible world." And then like it's nearly like a movie, and then it just descending. You fill my my senses as like the two-stroke like engine of a chainsaw goes through a bed. That's class. So yeah, on that, how do you write? Uh, I write by doing stuff like even having a conversation with yourself like this is is a great way of kind of sparking any kind of ideas. Um, I've always done things to do a show. So like in 2018, for example, I did loads of prison gigs. Oh, so I, yeah, cool. I, I did all the prisons in Ireland. Johnny um, Cash. Yeah, yeah, without any musical, Fen- any musical talent. Fender Jackson. Oh uh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, I've, I've done prison gigs. Oh really? You know the environment, you'll know then, it's it can be quite strange. And so that, that year's show was called Lock In, mm. for example. And then... This year's show that I, I just did last night in the, the Roisin Dove, I've done it twice actually, we did it, it sold out Galway Comedy Festival, so we added in a, excuse me, an extra show last night, that was, I wanted to do something a little bit different than the year before, so last year was called The God of All Things Bad, so I went to Guatemala and I met this deity called Mashamon and I travelled all around Central America, so that's what last year's show was about, and I said I want to do something a bit more simple, and... I want to do something about growing up in Ireland in the 80s and 90s and a kind of a nostalgia show. And my friend, is a he writes puns, he writes dad jokes. And we were doing shows in Austria and I was on a train and I was trying to come up with a title for the show. I'm like, what am I going to call this? And he said, what about Sweet Child O'Brien? And I was, initially I was like, oh, that's really cringe. And then I was like, oh, I actually love that. Yeah. And then it kind of grew on me. And it's, to this day, it's the best show name I think that's ever, <laughs> I've ever done. And then when I was doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with it this year, one of Slash's producers, an American woman, 
approached me after the show and said, I really love the show. I've been working with Slash for years. And she sent him a picture because I used the same emblem from uh, the Guns N' Roses album as the design and has Sweet Child O'Brien, obviously, instead it of working. Yeah. In fact, I had to look at it a few times yeah, yeah, yeah. before I got the joke. Yeah, exactly. So I just thought it's Sweet Child O'Brien. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, ah, there yeah. it is. Right, okay. And she sent him a picture of it and he just sent back the little rock oh. hand emoji. And I was like, oh my God, I've made it. That's it. I've got the word of it. Because I was like, maybe you'd be pissed off. You know what I mean? Oh, no, no. so cool. That's so cool. Oh man, Slash. I remember he was on a kids' program. Like, I was watching it then. Was he on Sesame Street? He was on Sesame Street. He could have been. He's probably. This was an English one. And it was live. Like Blue Peter. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it has a studio audience full of kids. I was talking about this pet snake and he had to get rid of it because it bit the f out of my finger. No way. (laughs) I was like. Wasn't poisonous or anything. Well, well, I was thinking of all the kids who were present. Yeah, you man, could hear that's a bit of trauma. Like, uh, well, you know, he couldn't. He he just actually said it, and I, was, I turned around to my friend. I said, "Did he just say that on a kids' program?" And she said, "Yeah." <laughs> so yeah, you went into prisons. Did, did you finish that story? Yeah. So like, you just like I kind of write by doing. So I went and did all these prison gigs, and then kind of connected. Where it were to the my- prisons? I did Wheatfield Prison, um, which is in Palmerstown. I did Mountjoy Prison, which is in uh, Dublin City, Northside. And I did Midlands Maximum Security Prison as well. What learning did you take from that experience? Um, Prison isn't what everyone on the outside thinks it is. And it isn't the glorified version of what it is to prisoners either. So when I was a youth worker, a lot of young people I worked with thought it was like a badge of honor that they'd been, you know, put in prison. Like, yeah, yeah, it's great. It isn't. It's not. It's it's bad for everyone is, is the best way to describe it. Like, it's just a really harsh environment. It's just really, it's just unpleasant. Like, you know what I mean? It's boring. It's, well, it's, you know, it's as it should be. It's a place for punishment. But I don't know, like a couple of things that prisoners said to me kind of resonated with me. And a lot of the prisoners in Ireland are in there for addiction. I'm not talking about bad people who've hurt people or sex offenders or anything like that. But 90% of the prison is people that are in there for like theft and stuff because of addiction. And I used to be an addiction counsellor and I'm like, well, we need to deal with the addiction and the mental health side of things. And then our prisons won't be full. Do you get what I mean? But yeah. that's not what the Irish government does. And I actually just did see, I did the first ever workshop in a maximum security prison where I worked with inmates. This took me months to get across the line. I worked with inmates who had had the most difficult upbringing and really all of them were absolutely ingrained with addiction, like addiction. One of the clients was um, one of the prisoners had been using heroin since he was 13 wow. and he's now 37 Oh my god! and has been through everything you can ever imagine. And I just really connected with them and I did this six week workshop and it went from me talking to a group of lads in a room who couldn't even make eye contact with me when I was speaking to them to all of them getting up and doing a stand up set at the end. Oh, of it. so it's a workshop yeah. type thing. Yeah. So it took me six weeks. I was in there for six weeks and I learned more nearly about myself working with them. Right. And it was one of the best projects I've ever done. It was something like I was kind of the most proud of. And it was weird because I couldn't tell anyone about it because it was like confidentiality. And But and you're talking about it now. So what happened? Uh, I just like when I was doing it, I didn't know how it was going to go either. Do you know what I mean? I just was taking it week by week. And I, I, I was like, I don't know if this is I'm going to get any results out of this. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's a totally pioneering project. It was yeah. no one had done anything like this in the past. It took me months to get it across the line with the Irish Prison Service. Um, 
and eventually I did and and now I might be doing some stuff in the UAE um, and loads of other random things now because I've done that I've kind of done wow. I've done something so difficult and different that now anything is kind of possible in the realm of doing workshops with people be it company schools universities prisons mm. whatever it may be you know and it's rewarding work like and one of the reasons I did it is before COVID I remember working with a group of prisoners it's kind of a show slash workshop for their mental health week and this prisoner said to me I'm terrified of getting out I'm going to a wedding in a few weeks and I actually hope my sentence gets extended because I don't know what to say to people when I'm at that wedding. So that really stuck with me. And a lot of people are, are in there um, like they just need to change the system. The system doesn't work. You know, they get straight back out. They get straight back. There's no support. Like mm. one of the prisoners said to me as well, he goes, Danny, I know what time I get my breakfast here. I know what time I get my lunch. I don't have to worry about bills or rent or anything like that. So the outside world is a very scary place for people who've been in the system for so long. There's no support. It's literally, here's your clothes, here's your ID, good luck to you. And then they obviously, they can't deal with it and they end up using and then they end up stealing and reoffending. And then a cycle goes on and on and massive cost to the state, massive cost to us as taxpayers. And I just, we need to change. Something needs to change. This this yeah. isn't working. It's the same as homelessness. It's not working. You, you become institutionalized as a prisoner. Mm. And even, I, I went to prison, I, I volunteered to go to prison, uh, <laughs> I should say, um, when I was in my early 20s. I went twice and we staged a pantomime that the prisoners wrote for their children as part of a Christmas celebration. That's really cool. And um, we... We, it was like a rectangloid uh, box room and we put on a, a fake stage and lighting and all the rest. I didn't want to do it. And then the guy who was running it was my, you know, was doing a performing arts course. And the guy who was running it begged me to go in because I was the main musician in the course at, in my year at that time and um, in that cohort. And then what happened was I, I went in, long story short, and it was such an enriching experience for me personally because you got you got a window into a real different world, mm-hmm. you know. And and maybe maybe it's helped me along the way because I I'm I'm an alcoholic, you know. I haven't drunk in nineteen years. Good on you. And you in recovery for nineteen years. I I don't know if it's recovery. I I call it having beaten it. You know. I know people say mm-hmm. they, they they can't. Say, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I, I just think I am an alcoholic, but I've beaten it, you know. The best the best analogy I ever heard for addiction was I had a client when I worked in social care. So, like, nearly all my clients have been to prison, like male, mm. female. All of them had been incarcerated at some point. And there was a guy that I was working with, and he was managing to stay clean. And I was trying to keep him clean because he was, he was doing really well. And then he's, he's flying now. He's got kids, and he, he beat it. But he said to me, Danny, every morning I wake up, heroin's at the end of my bed doing mm. press-ups wow and wow that that to me is there's no beating addiction mm. it's you know it's in you forever like i you know my, my father um was a heroin user um, and a heroin addict in this like early Your father was. You know, my father was yeah wow. and there's alcoholism is absolutely rife through my family like my pretty much nearly all my father's side of the family are all dead from alcoholism wow. so that's one of the reasons i kind of do you drink? Got into addiction. I do, very rare, like <laughs> nothing. I did just did 100 days of sobriety, actually, just because yeah. I wanted to see if I could do it. And now I'm off the booze again till um, Paddy's Day. But I, I only had like five or six nights between like Christmas and uh, like New Year's. And I was just, I've kind of lost the, 
lost the graph for it and it's very hard you're here in Galway and everyone's like come on we have pints after the yeah. show and I had a zero last night and then got a couple of slices of pizza and then I'm, I'm up fresh this morning and doing this with yourself you know I, I heard I heard Al Pacino say that uh, for an alcoholic one drink is too many a hundred's not enough exactly that's perfect yeah yeah I'm, I'm very much like that and I've only got one gear like once I kind of go over the two point mark I'm like that's it let's go and yeah. then in your head you're like well I'm going to be hung over anyway yeah. I might as well go for it which is ridiculous yeah. you know and then it's like uh, my father is, talks about walking down the road and I saw this guy a friend of his he says oh Barney Joe you're you know, you're looking rough. He says, oh, John, I'm feeling really bad. And then uh, he said, well, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going up to the, I'm going up to the bar here. I'm going to have one drink. Okay, Barney Joe, see you later. Later on, my father sees Barney Joe and he's ripping through the village, shouting and roaring, lit. My father says to him, hey, Barney Joe, I thought you are just going up for one drink. He says, I did. I had one drink. And what happened? I felt like a whole new man. But this whole new man wanted to hope I more drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your, like, let's be straight up about it. Alcohol is poison. Yeah. And you're just poisoning yourself. And I love the points. I love the crack. I know it's so, mm. such an integral part of our culture here in Ireland. And I think I've done the last two Galway festivals sober. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Because I was just, I definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last two have been completely sober. Well, I've, does that mean you went on drunk? No, no, no. I never drink before gigs ever. Like, but yeah. you know, even afterwards, just wasn't drinking that weekend. Oh, oh, you're talking about sober throughout the whole. Yeah, period. yeah. yeah. Oh, so okay. when I'm down for the festival, and like that's a, that's people come here just to go for it. Like they come yeah. here to gig, but it's a big, big thing. And I'm like, I want to sell my shows and I want to build Good my on, audience yeah. and that this isn't that this is the time for me. For me personally, it's the time for me to work. It's not yeah. the time for points. You know. Do you know? Is I worked out whenever it's kicking the, the booze. So there's two main things wrong with booze. Number one is it's addictive, mm-hmm. and number two is it affects your judgment. Absolutely. So if you have one drink, it's affecting your judgment, and the addiction is kicking in. So Look, that's why that's people, why you, people always say this to me: Would you not have a pint before you go on stage? I, I was about to ask you that now. But that's like saying: Would you not have a pint before you go to the gym? Would you not have a pint before <laughs> you start doing your spreadsheets? No, like and. <laughs> Like a lot of people are like, oh, it relaxes me. And someone said to me a long, long time ago when I started comedy, a point can take a second off your timing. And a second is the difference between your joke being funny or not. Wow. So your timing and your... You're serious about this comedy lark now. Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> it's my job. It's my job. Like, I put nearly 15 years of my life into it. You know what I mean? Like I'm getting a mortgage and stuff. Yeah, like I, yeah. I cannot throw all that work away for yeah. points it's just uh, the balance is out this is my thing like it's it's i call it the crack balance Aye. whereas you could go out you could absolutely i could have blazed that last night ended up in the blue note till five o'clock in the morning slamming points i'd have just been a shell today i'd have yeah. got into the car with you still hammered you know breath like petrol coming up here rambling and i wouldn't even be really focused on what i'm saying to you i would have been yeah. just trying to keep it together yeah. in my head mentally and going through the through the malaise and it's it's just not how I want to live. I've I worked in pubs. I've witnessed addiction at the highest level. That addiction, I've seen people die from overdoses and work. And I'm just an alcohol. Personally, I think is the most destructive out of them all. Alcohol and gambling are. I, I I would rate I would rate them as far worse addictions. And the interesting thing, everyone always looks at heroin and goes, "Oh, look at that junkie there," and this kind of thing. And I'm like, 
anyone who uses heroin is just trying to block out pain, which usually comes from tra- trauma as in their childhood, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, whatever it may be. And the social acceptance of someone being an alcoholic, oh, he's a character, she's a character, they're great crack, they're this or that. And it's, 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 it's bad. <laughs> it's just mm, bad, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. So talk about last night's gig then. Sure. Uh, it was a belter. I'm, I'm glad it was good because I, I can't lie, like loads of people from Galway listen to this. I love Galway. I genuinely love it so much as a city. I this, love is, the, this is going out in the Ireland podcast, by the way. Oh, it's going all over. I lo- yeah. Listen, I, lo- I love my country, but there's a particular, there's just a beauty about Galway from a, a performer's perspective. People are just incredibly sound. The audiences are so sound. They're so up for it. So you're in Roisin Dove? It was in the Roisin Dove, yeah. So that was actually the second one. So I sold out this show in Galway Comedy Festival in October. So then I added a tour show um, last night. And it was just amazing. It was, the, it was the worst night of the year, I think we'll all agree, like weather-wise. It was horrendous. Like, it was raining sideways. It was freezing. Um, I had to do a load of writing work, so I had to get the train down. What, was writing for the gig? No, I had some other writing work. The gig, the gig was written last year, and I put it through the mill of the Edinburgh Fringe for 27 nights, and then I've just wow. done a load of tour dates. So the show's grand. The show's kind of so on So you the know ball. it's going to work? Yeah, well, mostly. And I, I adapt every show. Every show yeah. changes, depending on who's in the audience. I added, a, you know, I probably did 10 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes last night that I've never done before. You just, you add a little bit. A little bit how, how long is the show? About an hour. Wow. And yeah. how many people were present? Uh, I think it's about 150, I think, is the wow. yeah, so full house. This is in the downstairs Yeah, area. yeah, yeah. So it's tables and candles? No, no, tables, just chairs. Okay, it's just okay. rows of chairs. Oh, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. Okay. A few little stools for tables for the lucky few, but that's about it. I'm a single parent yeah. from, from, well, lately it's been for a long time, but... um. I don't get to go out much, so I, I see the photographs. I've yeah. seen photographs of the candles and the table, so this is a different gig. This is Yeah, but it's just to, to, to make people, to fit that many people in the room, they have yeah. to take out the tables, basically, cool. so it's just rows. So 20 minutes that you improvised, or what? Yeah, so like, you, like I did about 10 minutes at the top, which is kind of crowd stuff, and you're chatting about Galway and who's in, and there was a young fellow with an amazing hair and an amazing mullet at the front called Oliver, who coincidentally had been at another gig that I did in Dublin a week ago. Did he know that? Yeah, he did. I didn't know until after. I'm like, man, that's insane. Uh, is, he, is, he, is he like a groupie? No, he just coincidence. Complete coincidence. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think he, his family had bought a group. They bought 10 tickets for the show for like a family night out. Uh-huh. Um, but he had happened to be in Dublin the, the week before that I was doing a new material night. I was just working out a bit of stuff. like, uh-huh. And then... Yeah, the, listen, the audience, there's loads of people who've been coming to the shows for years and I love meeting them and, you know, like getting a bit of feedback. I got a ton of messages this morning from people going, that was our favourite show yet and like laugh from start to finish. And I love that because it makes all the hard work worth it, you know what I mean? And like I do the shows for that. Like I love seeing people coming back every year. I love seeing people that might have seen you at something and took a chance and coming to your solo show. And that's all I really want to do. Like the, the rest of the admin, like all the stuff we all have to do, like you're... You're doing all your taxes, you're writing your show, you're booking flights, you're trying to make, like I'm doing a run of shows in Barcelona, for example, in April, and I'm like, my producer over there is like, right, we're doing this Wednesday, this Thursday, then you're going to do a solo Saturday, then you're going to do another thing, and so your whole life is kind of working at logistics, Mm. and I need to get back here for this time, because I've got a gig in Dublin that night, and it's all kind of like like a big grid of Lego that you're trying to click together, Mm. but for me, being on stage and just enjoying myself is free that's the only time I kind of feel free because I've no phone Mm. I'm not looking at emails I'm just looking at an audience and 
going with it and I love it. Like that's that's the bit that I love the most. Limo mainly talks about taking the leap. Mm. You know, like I, I, he was in my living room playing the piano there the other day and he was, I said, how much of it is improvised? And he says, well, the hands, I'll, I'll see you at the end, mm. the type thing. And I was He's so to, gifted, like oh. it's insane. I've zero musical talent. I'm always like in awe and a couple of my cousins are musicians mm. and um, I'm just in awe of them. Like I'm just looking at them going, it's just a different brain, you know? Yeah. And I just love it. Like, and for me, what I do in my downtime, like I don't go to comedy live. It's so immersed in comedy. Any opportunity I get to go to live music, that's what I do. I go see my mates playing if it's in a pub in Dublin or I go see a band or I'll just go see a random band that's on at Whelan's. I'll just look at the Whelan's listing and go, right, who's on? And yeah. I'll just pop in or I go to the Ruby sessions and, I just love it. Like, and I think for me, having a couple of points with like a good pal, watching like someone just playing tunes, someone great in a bar playing some tunes. And I just love that. Like I did it with a, a, um, a friend of mine from Newfoundland. He's in a band called Rum Ragged. Uh, he's the lead singer. His name is Marks. So they were over doing some shows and I brought him on a little walking Guinness pub crawl. So we just basically had points Points saw some live music, points live music, points live music all over Dublin City from Dame Tavern to Padder Carney's. We even ended up in the Temple Bar and it was just class. Mm. Like, I like I actually haven't dragged since because I was so <laughs> written off the next day. But I love that. And that's, I think, our, a real, a real brilliant, beautiful thing we have here in Ireland. So you, as a teenager, were you checking out gigs or comedy gigs? Never. Or? We'd nothing. I, I don't even think I saw a comedy gig live until I was in my 20s. So it's all DVD or what's something yeah, on a videotape. Who, who were you watching then? My uncle is about eleven years. My mom had me really young; she was only twenty. And my uncle is my uncle is closer in age to me than he is to his older brother. Do you get what I mean? There's yeah, eleven yeah. years between me and my uncle. Yeah. I think there's thirteen years between him and my other uncle. And uh, I remember he was babysitting me, and I used babysitting in the loosest possible. Mm. Um, sense of the term and I remember seeing Eddie Murphy raw oh and I was about I'd say I was about I must have been like eight or something and my uncle was like in convulsions laughing and I remember just going what is this yeah. and my mom came in and went absolutely mental he's like don't let me watch that and I was just hooked I was just I was like this is the best thing I've ever seen and I just loved watching stand-up like loved Billy Connolly loved Dylan Moran loved Des Bishops you know what I mean early stuff then I worked in a venue called Spirit Nightclub, which a big mass. It was the biggest nightclub in Ireland at the time. And the Laughter Lounge moved there temporarily because the venue had been flooded. So they moved. And I used to watch Pat McDonald, Carl Spain, Des Bishop, Paddy Courtney, uh, Deirdre O'Kane, all of them. And now I host the Laughter Lounge and I'm gigging with these same people. And I'm like, this is mental because I was 19 and I was behind the bar going, this is I love this. Yeah. I never thought I'd do it. It just wasn't on my radar. And then yeah. about five years later, I was I was doing stand-up myself. So the Laughter Lounge, that's your... Now, forgive me, I don't know much about the comedy scene yeah. in Dublin, right? I've never lived in Dublin. And yeah. I've, it's been a while since I've visited there. Um, I had Johnny Graham here from Ireland's Smallest Comedy Club. I know Johnny from, well. Johnny's. Yeah. I've been working with Johnny for years. Johnny did some tour supports with me for the... I think it was a rack and tour show, but he was with me in like Clifton. He was with me in Ennis. He's a brilliant comic, a lovely, mm. lovely guy as well. Well, he, he's the MC of Ireland's yeah, smallest he's great host. Uh, comedy club. And he, yeah, it's above the Dew Drop Inn where, yeah. where I met you today. And he was saying, he looks at Dublin and thinks, oh, wouldn't that be great? Seven nights a week, you know, mm. comedy and all the rest. But then he talks about 
the amount of work involved in writing one show, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he pretty much, some of it is, is a templated, but then you're, you're sort of setting yourself up for it. So tell me about your comedy club in Dublin. It's, is it seven nights a week? No, it's three nights a week. So it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It's called the Comedy Crunch, which I run with uh, Colin McGlinchey. And it kind of started in the last credit crunch, <laughs> hence the name, the Comedy yeah. Crunch. And we give out free ice cream on the break. So we started the club. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started the club. Um, Colm started off as like a monthly. And then he was looking for people to MC, And I wanted to MC because I wanted to get better at being a stand-up. And MCing is a kind of a fast-track way to get better because you're more stage time. You have to kind of think on your feet and stuff. So then the night started getting busier. It was in a venue called She Bean Chic. So then we started going weekly. Then we went twice weekly. It started off monthly, then it went bi-monthly, then it went once a week, then it went twice a week, then it went three times a week. And then the venue shut down. And we had built up this audience and we were like, we don't want to lose all of this. So we contacted the Stag's head and we had a meeting with them. And they said, well, if you can bring your audience with you, we'll let you use the venue. So we took all the audience with us and we've been in the Stag's head for over a decade now. And we're the busiest comedy club, I would say, without a doubt, in the country. Wow. For the size and to be the busiest comedy club in the country on the worst nights of the week mm, is the hardest yeah. thing to do. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Mm. Yeah, we have a massive tourist um, following. So our audience is always kind of maybe 70% tourists and mm. then 30% people who live in Ireland but not necessarily are from Ireland. Mm. Do you get what I mean? So we've got a huge like mixture of like students like every corner of the globe like loads of americans you get loads of canadians scandinavians australians europeans south americans you name it like mm. get lots of hospitality staff people who work as chefs and cooks over the weekend come in to us for their night off mm. and it's just i love it and it's it's made me really adaptable i I will gig in any country like you sent me to mongolia to do a set i i, I never feel uncomfortable because i've been gigging for every nationality for the last 12 years mm. so and i that the comedy crunch plus doing a new show for the edinburgh fringe every year is the only reason that i'm able to do this professionally those two things are so incredibly important because if I was just doing club spots all year and I didn't do the Edinburgh Fringe, you would just be doing the same 20 minutes over and over and over. Whereas the crunch, you can try out little bits and pieces every week. You're always constantly trying out bits and you're always developing. And it's the gym. Do you know what I mean? You're in the gym. I, I just, you know, I had this question in my head. Do you go to the gym? I do, yeah. Right, okay. Because I was just thinking, does one feed the other? You know, Because you're, you're motivated. Mm. I mean, the fact is that you're doing so much output. So, I mean, I don't know how many, how many gigs did you do last year? In, I, I pulled back a little bit, but I used to do over 400 a year. Oh. But before COVID, I would be doing over 400 because the Edinburgh Fringe, I did 100, the most I ever did in a month was 109. And that was during the Ed, Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And some of them, like 26 of them would have been solo hours. Another 26 of them would have been a split show that I did with my mate. Mm. And then probably another 10 of them I would have been hosting Spank, which is a legendary late night show, which is sadly discontinued. Mm. Um, and then the rest was all spots. So you're doing 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there. But I, d I did 109, nearly got to 110, nearly oh. had a mental breakdown. <laughs> and I'm like, I had to stop. How long do you spend in the gym and how often do you go? I try go, if, if I'm in Ireland, I try and do three a week if I can. And you're, you're in there for about 45, 50 minutes. And, and what do you do? 
I get absolutely hammered by my gym trainer. Like I'm always, he's from Mayo actually. He's an absolute legend. And I had a really bad knee injury years ago and I was going to have to get a knee reconstruction. And I was like, I can't, like I'm self-employed comic. I can't do, I can't take eight months off work. I, I can't do it. Like, and he said, listen, do what I tell you and I'll fix your knee. And I trained and he fixed my knee wow. in six weeks. But no, What's no, his name? Uh, Paul Moore. Shout out to you, Paul. Yeah, shout out, Polly. Um, but I go there and do you know what? The gym is a million times more important for my head than my physical health. Physical health's important. And I think the gym is like, it's your, your, your pain. It's your health insurance. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to look after yourself. Um, and I love food and stuff, but you have to look after yourself mm. with diet and you have to look after yourself with work. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing, to anyone who's listening to this and if they are struggling a little bit with alcohol or anything like that, I did the 100 days of sobriety. Mm. I wanted to see if I could do it. And it was the most transformative thing I've ever done. And after about a month, and you'll know this as well, after about a month or two, it takes about two months for alcohol to get completely out of you, Whoa. right? But after two months, the output that you were putting out, mm. I was putting out a video every day. I was mm. working, I was doing 12-hour days. I was training, I was hiking, but I, I was sleeping, I was sea swimming, I did 12 dips of December. I, I've never been at a higher functioning level in my life than after those 100 days of sobriety. Wow. Then I went back on it and had a few points over to Christmas and I felt like I never had lifted weight in my life. <laughs> and it's mad how much alcohol just, you know, like the Etch-A-Sketch. It's yeah. like you've done this like beautiful Mona Lisa on an Etch-A-Sketch and I'm telling you, two or three piss-ups will or nights out on the booze will wipe the etch sketch clean yeah. that's how i feel about it you know whenever i stopped boozing i went to aa once mm. and you know i was euphoric whenever i gave up booze i remember i poured cans down the down the, the sink yeah and i got the guitar out <laughs> is this is this an ode to the empty can well i, I what I did was I, I, I got the guitar out and I just started going Tonight we're gonna hear a real good time I feel alive in the world I'm turning inside out I'm floating around in ecstasy so don't stop me now don't stop me because I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, I felt euphoric. I felt I embraced sobriety. Mm -hmm. You know, I grabbed it and I kissed it and snugged it and yeah. got married to it. And then I went to AA once and I remember sitting in AA and they're all, you know, my name is Jimmy and I'm an alcoholic. It's been 14 years in my last drink and all this stuff, you know. And I mean, fair play to these people. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lull in the conversation. And I said, uh, it's my first time being in something like this. And, uh, yeah, I thought I was over it, but now I'm not so sure. Everybody just turned around and looked at me and salivated. It was almost like fresh blood. Yeah. You know? There's a vampire element to yeah. it. Yeah. I... I I don't know how I feel. Listen, whatever works for people, yes, go for it. Exactly. I just don't really like the kind of religious thing, the 12 steps and all that. I don't yeah. like that. That's that's not for me. But if it works for people, go if it for works it. for people, absolutely go for it. Everyone finds their own path. Yeah. Do what my path was. What? Singing lessons. Amazing. So I Google up this lady on the internet or anybody who's going to teach me how to sing. Yeah. And 
You'll you'll notice there that whenever I played Queen, yeah, it wasn't in the Queen key because I'm a baritone, yeah, and and I was all trying to sing along with Bono, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because yeah. he's a tenor, yeah, and I'm a baritone. I could sing along with Johnny Cash, yeah, 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 um, bit of Tom Waits. Tom Waits, I love Tom yeah, Waits. Yeah. I adore Tom Waits. My, he's my. I don't you know, want your money, man. I just want change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in 2016, Prince died, Bowie died, and I was thinking if Tom. And you know what? Died, we all said this is the worst year ever. Yeah. Surely it can never get any worse than this. Dun dun dun! dun. One World Cup later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was well, good. But I yeah. So I googled up, found this lady. She's a singing teacher, and that was it. I was in learning my singing, and that had me focused all week. I'm gonna go to the singing lesson, having done some work. And I was singing Philip Glass and all the rest, you know, big long notes and yeah, whatever it takes to get you through it. That's a good thing, yeah. you know. And like everyone has their own thing and staying busy is the most important thing. Yeah. Like when I when I did the 100 days of sobriety, everyone said, oh God, you not miss it. Jesus, fair play, 100 days. Yeah. Not once did I have to go for points because I stayed busy consistently. Yeah. I was in the gym. I was hiking, I was doing the 12 dips of December, I was doing ice baths with my mate, so when I wouldn't have time to be able to go, or the weather was too bad to do a sea swim, I did an ice bath. What happens if you have to do a wee-wee before you get into the ice bath? You just do it in there. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, will you piss, or will you actually contract? Will, will, will it automatically yeah, you, make you contract? Yeah, you're like, you're grand, you're knocking, you're not, you only pee when you're relaxed, and you are not relaxed in an ice so, bath. So you could be dying for a pee, and then go in the ice oh, bath. Oh yeah, it shuts then, it off. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So next time my kid wants to really go to Put the toilet, an ice bath. you know, bring an ice bath. Yeah, yeah. We'll go to the cinema with an ice bath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just have an ice bath in the booth, cling film over it. One of those inflatable ones, cling film over the top. Get in there. Get in yeah. there. Enjoy the movie. It's, it's funny, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I do talk about that in the show. At the end of the show, when I was younger, I used to always have to pee. Like as kids do, yeah. you no control. And I remember like being, I used to get so embarrassed because my mom or my granny would just make you pee in the car park of a, of a supermarket. Uh -huh. Do you know what I mean? They just said, just pee there. And they used to always be like, should we no one looking at you? Do we know one looking at you? And you'd yeah. be so mortified. You'd end up peeing on yourself and stuff or you'd have to pee in a ditch and you'd be convinced that the cars going past were like, ah, oh, but in reality, they're just like, no one cared. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. but I remember how embarrassed you'd get as a kid. You'd yeah. be like, no. Tell me. Back to your comedy crunch. Do mm -hmm. you, you get visiting artists coming? Yeah, we've been so lucky. Like we've had Bill Burr on our stage. Yeah, I saw we've that. Had Jim Jeffries. Yeah. Um, we've had some of the biggest comics in the world, like even Irish, like Foil Arms and Hog, will pop in every now and then to try out stuff. Colin Geddes. <laughs> yeah, Colin hasn't been down yet, but Has we'll definitely not? get him on. Yeah, he's a great act. I'm actually gigging with Colin in three weeks. Three weeks. Oh, where's that at? I'm up in Lavery's. I'm doing a comedy oh, club right. in Belfast. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'll be up there for a few days. Yeah. Um, he's great, man. And I've, I've gigged with him a lot, actually, at Galway Comedy Festival. I hosted a show he was on. And, um, yeah, it's like, do you know what? It's, it's weird because we don't really, sometimes you might only see acts like that once a year, mm. twice a year, or once every two years, just mm. because of the way it falls. And listen, we all have common ground. We're all working towards the same goal. And... I just think it's important just to stay busy and stay focused. And everyone wants different things. Mm. Like a lot of my friends have full-time jobs and comedy is their hobby mm. and it's their passion. And that's amazing. For me, it's my passion and it's my, it's my job. And I'm, I've done, I'm in it too deep now to do something else. Do you know what I mean? So I have to diversify what I do. And that's how I do workshops and I run events and I have a few little festivals and have the comedy crunch and all that kind of stuff. I want to ask you about your corporate stuff in a mm. second. But before we get there, 
there's a couple of things I want to really want to talk to you about. One is um, YouTube. I yep. mean, whenever a band's going to try out new material, it's good that it goes up on YouTube because then people know the material sure. and then they're familiar with it. It doesn't work like that with comedy, does it? No, or, or does I, I, it? I wouldn't put up a clip. I, no, no, I'm talking about the audience. No, that like uh, for me, like the online audience isn't a litmus test unless you're putting up like an Instagram reel where it's a little one liner joke and you would throw it up and see how that does. But I would always test that stuff out in the club. I would, you know, that's where I would do my work and that's how I find out if things but work. But I think what my question is, n- not if it works, but having to rewrite new material because mm. the audience knows all the material because yeah. they've seen you on YouTube. Yeah, so like, I like the pressure of that. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't, I'd like if I could turn back the clock 10 years, I would have been putting up material 10 years ago because instead I was like, oh, I don't want to burn my material or you're worried people will rob it or whatever it may be. And in reality, I think the more stuff you get out, the better it is because um, it's nearly like shedding a skin. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You get it up, you get it out, and then you write another bit and another bit. And it's very easy to become reliant. We call them bankers. So a banker is a bit that no matter where you are in the world, you've got this five-minute bit that 99% of the time will kill it in any room. Mm. And if you're doing a gig and it's not really going the way it is, you go, right, I'm going to go into that bit that is absolutely, it's as good as it can possibly be. It always develops a little bit, but you know what I mean? Something that's just beat for beat will just kill it for five minutes straight. So throw it up. And and people have don't have an issue with hearing some stuff again. I think that's a big problem with comics. We're like, oh, you know, people... I've done shows and the people are like, coming up after going, oh, I thought you were going to do that bit. And like, you know, why didn't you do that bit? And I'm like, well, I did it last time. I didn't want you to, mm. they don't mind is is the point. Yeah. It's kind of like when people go to see a band, they're never going to be annoyed if they play one of their hits. Yeah. And I think comedy is similar for that. Now, obviously you can't get away with doing, like if you invite someone to do a tour show and then you just regurgitate sets that you've been doing that's cheating you can't do that and people will be annoyed and that's fair enough so that's why you need to write the new hour but you also can throw in little bits of lines here and there that you've done before and people expect that and it makes the show better so it's it's fine you know mm. tell me about edinburgh so first of all i was looking on their website you can <coughs> register an act oh yeah anyone can anyone can do the fringe that's the beauty of it anyone and is it replicated? Are you trying to replicate that with your... I know you're trying to kick festivals yourself, but mm. it seems quite similar. Um, doesn't seem quite similar. So what I'm asking is two things. Your personal process for Edinburgh, and then the second thing is, is Edinburgh being um, uh, replicated anywhere in the world? There's nothing as big. The second biggest arts festival after Edinburgh, as far as I'm aware, definitely comedy, is Adelaide Fringe Festival in Australia. So the Edinburgh Fringe is... The biggest arts festival in the world. It's very heavy on comedy, but there's also a huge amount of theatre, huge amount of music. But it's kind of known, I suppose, internationally as the Edinburgh Fringe Comedy Festival. And how it works is, so if you imagine a city the size of Dublin City, everything becomes a venue. Every So if it was in Dublin, all of the student spaces and Trinity College would be turned into a venue. So in Edinburgh, there's the big four, right, which is the Underbelly, the Pleasants, the Gilded Balloon, and Assembly. So they're the big four venues, producers, venues. They've got like circus tents, they've venues all over the city. Then you've got the Fringe, the Free Fringe, which comprises of two companies. It's Laughing Horse and PBH. So then there's free venues, which are like venues and pubs all over the city. Then you've got Scottish Comedy Festival, who I'm with. I was with Underbelly for years. And then I moved to Scottish Comedy Festival a few years ago. 
And I do two shows for the whole month with Scottish Comedy Festival. I do a tour show, solo show. And then I do a show with two other comics called An Englishman, An Irishman and A Scotsman, which we just took a punt on doing last year and it sold out the run. Because we were like, why don't we just do a show that's a bit of crack? That Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman, a triple headline show. Uh, We get people up at the end. It's fun. It's a party. It's just Mm. a great crack hour. So we do that, and then I do another show called Afternoon Delight with a friend of mine, Rory O'Hanlon, that we've done for a decade. And that show sells tickets for solo shows. And it's like there's 7,000 shows approximately a day at the Edinburgh Fringe. 7,000. So if you can imagine Galway Arts Festival, like I'm not sure how many, so say there's, even if there was 100 going on during Galway Arts Festival, between everything, you know, between kids' shows and... They might have stuff in the Roisin Dove. They might have theatre pieces in the various theatres and the Black Box and Town Hall. But imagine that by 7,000. Wow. It's insane. And like, it wouldn't be that much bigger than Galway, you know? But like coffee shops and all, they turn into venues. Everything. I saw a show in a butcher's. I'm not even joking you. Like, everything kind of becomes a venue. Any space that can be utilised. And how does, uh, how does the butcher register itself? So they just, they just register as a venue, like, and people basically put in blackout curtains, PA system, and oh. away you go. Wow. And... Like, you know, basements and nightclubs and it's phenomenal. It's an absolutely phenomenal thing to be a part of. And what's the evolution cycle of your material from the start of the... What what goes in, it's nearly like a digestive tract. Yeah. Uh, what what goes in, you're, you go with a semi-formed idea of a show. Like this year's show is, I'm climbing Kilimanjaro in July. And my show is called Kill a Dan Jaro, right? Because I've, I've done it. I did a couple of bungee jumps and stuff. Maybe it's a midlife crisis, but that's what I wrote the show about and doing the cold water swimming and stuff like that and you know what doesn't kill you that's kind of the narrative of the show what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type thing um and i've pushed pushing the boundaries of that quite a lot over the last year and i'll go in with a semi-formed show and then i'll do it for 26 nights in a row and you find out real quick what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. so like if you have an a4 sheet of paper with the worst bit for me the fringe is the first week where you have all this stuff and you're like this is great this is going to be brilliant and you go in with an hour and 15 usually and then it just gets whittled down to 50 minutes that works so about 25 minutes of it will automatically kind of just get cut because you'll do it a couple of times and if it doesn't get a laugh even if you love the bit you got to cut it you got to be really brutal so you listen back to your hour like you listen back you mentioned when you're editing a haircut it's exactly the same process Mm. i have to give the show a haircut Mm. so you kind of go in you go in with like a scraggy like ball of hair and you try and come out with something nice and smooth and sharp that works for everyone and then when you take it on tour, you can change it a little bit for Galway or Dublin or Cork or Prague or wherever that you bring the show, you know. But for me, it's the most important part of the year because it gives you something to work towards. And then when you do get to that goal, you then work it. It's the gym for your show. I mean, I have images here of Joe Strummer. Do you ever see his haircut in 1975? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's the evolution of Joe Strummer. That's exactly what it is. And it's great. And like, I, I, I became a professional comedian from the Edinburgh Fringe. I got brought to Australia on a tour. Um, I, I now do three shows a day, every day for the Fringe, which is quite demanding. Like you're, you're broken afterwards, mentally, physically. Like that's a lot of gigs in a short amount of time. It's basically the equivalent of doing a year's work in three and a half weeks. That's the best way I can describe it. We're running out of time. Tell me about your corporate gigs. I do comedy and confidence building workshops. for uh, Just... Just for total part transparency, yeah. because you don't know me from Adam, really. Sure. I, I've done prison work. Yeah. I've d- had that addiction process happen. Yeah. 
I used to be a street entertainer. I was a tla- wow. I was a clarinet. That's the hardest hustle going. You'd make a killing in Edinburgh. I, I well, everybody at the. I used to do one man shows in London and um, comedy performances. I did Prince the Musical on banjo. Wow. I spent two years. That would fly at the Edinburgh. Well, that's Fringe. what people are telling that me. That would fly. But I I'd did, buy a ticket to that. But you know what I was doing at that time? I was working in PwC. You're joking. Yeah, so I felt like I was Batman. Yeah. You know, it was Christian Bale and it was Batman. And then a prince, <laughs> a, a banjo. So Christian Bale by day and prince clown guitarist by night. Banjo player. Yeah. Banjo player. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, this is, this is yeah. I, I'm interested from the corporate angle because you know yourself. There's a big cringe feeling whenever somebody from the outside comes in, oh, we're going to do team building. Oh yeah, yeah, God. absolutely. I totally so, understand that. Yeah, talk to me about that. So I think it's kind of an amalgamation of all the work that I've done over the years, whether it was youth work, youth justice, working with prisoners, and more importantly, 15 years of doing stand-up in the most hectic environments all around the world, whether it's a comedy club, a festival, whatever it may be. And all the stuff that we've learned the hard way, we compact into a workshop and... We want to teach people in a corporate setting how to give the best possible performance when they're doing any kind of public speaking or any kind of presentation. And we also want to teach them what to do when things go wrong and if things go wrong and how to kind of own the space and how to enjoy it and also how to be a bit more funny and personable and not be this like, okay, now we're going to do the Q&A and you know what I mean? It's like a snooze button. So you want, basically it's teaching people to be a little bit more engaging, having a bit of a laugh. And we tell them some war stories like this isn't a, we're amazing and you need to be great at this. This is, here's what we've learned from our mistakes and hopefully you can take some of this stuff without having to go through the pain that we've gone through. And we get everyone up in the microphone I'll give you a really perfect example of why these are so beneficial. We did a half-day workshop for a hedge fund company in the UK, right, called Validus, which were based in Eton, in Windsor and Eton. It was very, you know, very posh, you know. And there was 11 senior managers and the CEO was the one that booked the workshop because he used to do stand-up as a secret side hustle because he wanted to stay sharp for his presentations as a CEO, so we got booked for this. Myself, Carl Spain and Jack Wise are two colleagues that I work with a lot, two amazing performers. Jack is a world street performing world champion. He does sword swallowing. He does magic. Carl is one of the best joke writers in the country. So we get these 11 people and get them talking about themselves. And you'll know from working at PwC, it's all water cooler chat. Mm. It's all, you know, you know, how's the kids? Did you go anywhere nice on your holiday? No one really talks about themselves. Mm. Do you get what I mean? It's I did, but, uh, you know, I think I scared the hell out of a lot of people, but carry on. Yeah, but you know that kind of environment, and I know it's to resonate with a lot of people that are listening. So out of the group, you just try and get them to talk a little bit more about themselves and open up. And I don't mean in a therapy session, I mean more... What makes you interesting and what makes you unique? By the end of the workshop, out of that group of 11, one of them, her father had been a professional heavyweight boxer who fought Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser, okay? Another woman had been a professional ice skater in Hungary before she moved to the UK, right? She was in the Olympics. There was one Irish guy in the group who had done a month-long run of the Merchant of Venice in a tiny theatre in New York with Al Pacino. Oh, wow. And none of that had ever come up before we did the workshop. And that's 
why the workshops are great because you're finding out stuff about people and then we write jokes for them mm. as in that are personal to them so if i was we did a workshop with you we would talk about all the stuff that you've done in china like the fact that you did a show with prince being a banjo player like that's so unique and so different but that's the ultimate icebreaker but people are far more interesting than they think and often when people think oh i've nothing really to say and then when you talk a little bit about them and get them talking about themselves everyone has a story and it's about finding the bit from everyone's story that's relatable to everyone else and that's the ultimate icebreaker and if you can make that a little bit funny at the start of a presentation like funny is money do you get what i mean as in you're more engaging you're more likely to get your sales pitch across you're more personable you're more likable and that's what the workshops effectively do yeah a lot of a lot of business is done in relationships. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Your website, DanielBrianComedy.com. That's it. You're performing in Greystones in February fifteenth. Fifteenth is sold out. Actually, it's is just it? the fourteenth. Or, or sorry, the sixteenth Friday sold out. Wexford. So Wexford's nearly sold out. Yeah. Dundalk. Dundalk. A few tickets left on the twenty second. Sligo twenty third. Yeah, that's ha- over halfway. Castlebar is already sold out in advance. Port, Port Leash on the twenty fourth. Few left. Yeah. Castlebar sold out, as you said, on the 29th. Drawhead on March the 8th. Handful, and I'm doing some extra shows up there as well. Ennis, March the 9th. Yeah, nearly gone. Limerick, uh, April 5th. That's a bit away, so there's loads of tickets. <laughs> <laughs> London, April 12th. Where is that? That is in Top Secret Comedy Club in Covent Garden. Cool. And then the 13th is in the theatre in Windsor called The Old Court. That's actually down to the last 20 tickets already. So Wow. Yeah. Danny, first of all, you're the first person who I've had on the podcast who could use a microphone. Oh, really? <laughs> I was going to turn you down and thinking, well... I, I teach mic technique in those corporate workshops, so if I messed that up, I'd be, I'd be screwed, you well, know? Well, I'm going to have to... I usually have to add a lot of compression, but I don't think I have to do that with you. Sweet. Yeah, and then, um, second of all, I wanted to applaud you because you bring laughter uh, to people, and what are we without laughter, you know? For sure. Yeah. It's just and without, without an audience, there's no laughter. <laughs> like, like I, I'm, I'm, I am so grateful to the audiences, and that, like even last night, I said it at the end of the show, people who book babysitters, who buy tickets, who take a night off to come and see the show is the whole reason that I do stand-up, and I love seeing their faces there. And even if you don't get to chat to everyone afterwards and they're heading off, like I, I'm so grateful to every single person who sits in that audience, you know, whether it's 40 people or 400 people. And uh, that's what keeps me going and it motivates me to write a new show every year and keeps me coming back to Galway and everywhere else. So let's end on the biggest laugh of all. Let's do Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> I can't sing, but you can play it. <laughs> no, you're going to sing. You're going to sing. No, I you, definitely can't. But you started singing... Uh... Don't stop me now, so we can do this, can't you? Go and get the lyrics up there. I can't sing. It doesn't matter. Let me find it. Let me find it. She's got a smile that it seems to me Reminds me of childhood memories Where everything was as fresh as the bright blue sky Now and then when I see her face She takes me away to that special place And if I stare too long I'd probably break down and cry 
Stop while we're behind. Yeah. <laughs> Danny. Go to meal my August. Go to meal my August. Found there an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you Slan. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.